Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from The Adventures of Tintin, made in 2011. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here today. John Williams took a break of a little less than three years after completing his score for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But it wasn't really a break. In that time, Steven Spielberg was working on a movie about a famous adventurer who traveled the globe in search of a mysterious treasure. No, it was not Indiana Jones, but a young journalist named Tintin as the hero of this film. I won't be alone in discussing this film and its score by John Williams. Felix Moeller is a big fan of the score for The Adventures of Tintin, and he joins us now. Hello, Felix. Hi, Jeff. It really is an honor to be part of this special series, and I think this expression is appropriate in the context of John Williams. Thank you very much for letting me invite myself to this adventure. Yes, I'm glad you asked to be a co-host for this episode. So let's hear a bit about you and how you became a John Williams fan. I don't know if you have that much time, but I'll try to make it short. I'm originally from Celle near Hannover in northern Germany and originally looked for a book about Star Trek in the city library there in summer 2000. However, I then found Star Trek sheet music, but unfortunately it was on loan. But then I discovered Star Wars sheet music, which I borrowed. I knew the movies I had just seen and was so impressed by the piano melodies that I decided to buy the CDs as well. I had found the new Episode 1 soundtrack and a special box of the old trilogy. And in the booklet were all the other soundtracks John Williams had composed. But I still didn't plan to buy more CDs from John Williams at that time. It was only when I recognized the Indiana Jones melody in a documentary about a raft ride on TV that my interest was awakened and since then I went to all kinds of CD stores and searched the CDs for John Williams soundtracks. It was like a rush. Later I also borrowed a book from the library about film music and with the help of it I ordered more soundtracks from the internet. In 2000 my mother gave me a trip to LA for my high school graduation and two visits to a Williams concert in the Hollywood Bowl. Since I like to draw, I drew a caricature of John Williams conducting little trees that represent his soundtracks while singing Cora Mata and called the whole tree song because of his love for trees. I planned to give it to him backstage after the first concert. Unfortunately, he did not come out of the mentioned exit. Only James Taylor, who was also present, came out there to satisfy an elderly lady who allegedly waits there backstage for John Williams after almost every concert. One day later, before the second concert, I went to the stage and made contact with a musician. He took me to the head of security, who, to my astonishment, waved me through joyfully after he had seen the caricature. Then I entered the anteroom where the musicians were already waiting for the performance, but John Williams was not there yet. His agent then came and I didn't seem very empathetic. 
He told me to take the picture out of the plastic bag and went into the next room to ask John Williams if he would meet me for a moment. Then he came back and said that John Williams had no time, before or after the concert. He offered me to leave my address for an autograph, but I refused. I just wanted to give Williams the picture personally and not have an autograph. But later I thought maybe I should have left the address there so that Williams might have written me a few words later. But I had left my caricature with gold frame there. Who knows, maybe it hangs somewhere in the basement of John Williams? The friendly musician who brought me backstage assured me that he would ask Williams personally if the caricature arrived at his place. He introduced himself to me as the first cellist, Daniel Rothmuller, and told me that he had already played on some Williams soundtracks, such as Temple of Doom. My pass was inspired by Williams' music, although I already hummed my own melodies to landscapes passing by the car window as a child. After learning the piano and working as a freelance composer for a few years, I studied composition for film and media at the Music Academy in Munich from 2013 to 2017, where I worked with the Munich Symphony Orchestra, among others. Now I write music for documentaries, commercials and concerts. In between, I even sent John Williams an arrangement of Happy Birthday in the Star Wars arrangement for his 75th birthday. But unfortunately, I didn't get a real answer. In January 2015, I started a John Williams series in our studio cinema in the Music Academy, in which we watched two Williams films every month until March 2019 in chronological order from 1960 to the present. That's a bit of a link to your analyzer series, so I'm going through it a second time more intensively. Who knows, maybe we were even the first to see all the Williams movies in chronological order, with three or four exceptions from Williams' early work. That's so amazing. I love that Hollywood Bowl story. You got a lot closer to John Williams than any of us who have stood at that Hollywood Bowl every night waiting for him to come out. I guess the secret is drawing something special. That's what one of my co-hosts, Maurizio Caschetto, did at the Vienna concert earlier this year, and it got him a private meeting with the maestro. And also, by the way, I'm really happy to hear about that film series that your academy did. It is quite the history lesson. So before we start talking about this score, if you just will allow me, Felix, I need to clear the air about something. So in the 12th episode of, of this podcast, I said John Williams would write music for every film genre except for animated films. Immediately after that episode went live, I got hammered with emails from listeners who wanted to make sure that I knew that The Adventures of Tintin is an animated film, which would have checked that genre off the list. And in every reply, I noted that Tintin is not an animated film because the characters are created using motion capture, which means the actors perform on a soundstage wearing motion capture suits during filming, and their performances are used to create the characters we see on screen. Animated films don't film actors on sound stages. Everything in an animated film is created either on the computer screen or on drawing paper. Now, this is why the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences says in its rules for the best animated film category that, quote, motion capture and real-time puppetry are not by themselves animation techniques, and that a significant number of the major characters must have been created using animation techniques. 
But during my research for this episode, I discovered that The Adventures of Tintin was submitted and accepted for consideration for the Best Animated Feature Film category at the 84th Academy Awards, which means the film fit the Academy's criteria for an animated film. So, you know, if it's good enough for the Academy, it's good enough for me. So here it is. The Adventures of Tintin is an animated film, which means John Williams has officially scored movies in every film genre. As far as I could tell, only Jerry Goldsmith has done that. So my apologies to those listeners who I summarily shot down previously. You were right, and I was wrong. I think he didn't score medieval historical movies like Knight's movies, right? Those older historic movies are astonishingly missing in his oeuvre. No, he hasn't. You're right. But I would count medieval movies as historical movies, and John Williams has done plenty of those. Maybe yes, but historical movies from Williams are from more recent history. I think The Patriot must be the oldest. He has no medieval or even antique movies, which is interesting because his music would fit to it. Yes, he might do well with those. They weren't too popular after 1960 Spartacus, with the exception of the Oscar-winning film The Lion in Winter in 1968. Now, I don't know if Ridley Scott reached out to John Williams for Gladiator composing duties in 2000, or if Williams would have even been able to work on that score and The Patriot that same year. So, yes, that subgenre of films might have been a missed opportunity for Williams. You're actually right. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get started with talking about The Adventures of Tintin. I'm really excited to talk about this movie because I have been a big enthusiast of the Tintin series for 25 years. The author Hergé was born in Brussels in 1907 and invented Tintin in 1929 at the suggestion of an abbot of a Belgian newspaper, Le Versiam Siècle, which means in English the 20th century. And indeed, in the Tintin adventures, the whole 20th century is historically reflected with its numerous wars, the moon landing, hippie culture, scientific discoveries and contemporary art. There are even analyzes by semiotics professors on the visual language and literary meaning of Tintin. Tintin in Tibet, for example, is one of his greatest works in which Ajay deals with a separation from his longtime wife in favor of a younger draftswoman in his studio. Therefore, he had nightmares in white and therefore even visited a psychoanalyst, a student of C.G. Young. He advised him to destroy the demon of whiteness within himself by stopping drawing comics. But Hergé instead processed this story artistically, in which the Yeti represents the inner demon and the search for a good friend of Tintin, the search for true love. It ends with the Yeti, the demon, proving to be good, and at the same time, Ajay makes an effort throughout the comic strip to use semiotic images of psychoanalysis that represent the inner maturing process. This deep visual way of telling stories is typical for Ajay, and that is why Steven Spielberg became aware of him in 1981. When Raiders of the Lost Ark was released in Belgian and French cinemas that year, the French press wrote that Indiana Jones was similar to Tintin. Spielberg became curious and had a comic sent from France. He hardly understood the language, but the visual language impressed him so much that he decided to film Tintin. When he shot Temple of Doom in England in 1983, 
He called Ajay to meet him with him two weeks later. Unfortunately, Ajay died just one week after the phone call. And Jeff, two weeks later, I was born, but that is not the topic now. But Spielberg commissioned Melissa Matheson, the author of E.T., to write a script. However, Spielberg would not entirely satisfied with this, primarily in terms of fidelity to the original. And on top of this came the difficulty of finding a suitable actor for Tintin. Incidentally, Jack Nicholson was first under discussion for the role of Captain Haddock. In any case, Spielberg gave up the project. After Roman Polanski, among others, had expressed interest in filming Tintin, but was denied the rights because of too much artistic freedom. Spielberg returned to the project in the early 2000s, which never quite let go of him. No other project had pursued Spielberg as long as Tintin. Finally, Peter Jackson, the director of Lord of the Rings, came on board, who also revealed himself to be a Tintin fan. First, he was supposed to animate Snowy the Dog with his motion capture company Weta Digital until it turned out to be the best way to animate a comic completely with motion capture. In 2011, the movie finally made it into cinemas. And as you mentioned, selecting the right actors for Tintin is not easy. It required more than just having a good voice. Because motion capture was going to be used, you needed actors who might be familiar with the technique or at least inhabit the characters well. Possibly the greatest motion capture actor out there is Andy Serkis, who brought Gollum to life via motion capture in the Lord of the Rings movies. He also played the title Ape in 2005's King Kong, and just before starting work on Tintin was the Ape Caesar in the reboot of the Planet of the Apes series. Here, he's showing off some of his comedy skills as Archibald Haddock, a boozy ship captain who apparently holds the key to solving the film's main mystery. There didn't seem to be a major casting call for the role of Tintin. Spielberg and Jackson had hired unknown actor Thomas Brody Sangster, but production delays meant he had to drop out to make Death of a Superhero, which I've never seen, and I'm sure Brody Sangster regrets being part of that. In his place came Jamie Bell, who made his film debut in 2000 as Billy Elliot and had been in supporting roles since then. Bell and Circus were the two highly publicized actors for the film, and flying under the radar, at least until the film came out, was Daniel Craig as the villainous Ivan Saccharin. This would be Craig's second time working with Spielberg after his work on Munich, and timing was great for getting Craig because he was in between Bond films and seemed to be very busy around that time. He was in four movies in 2011. Though these three actors were well-known at the time, you don't feel like you're watching this film and hearing Jamie Bell, Andy Serkis, and Daniel Craig. You're hearing and seeing the the embodiment of these characters, something that really helps when telling the stories from such popular books. Now, as I said earlier, The Adventures of Tintin feels very much like an Indiana Jones movie, and that is felt often in the score. Because the process of making a film of this nature takes years, John Williams had plenty of time to think about his approach to the music. Using the early sketches and storyboards of the movie, as well as the pre-computerized images of the characters filmed on sound stages, Williams began writing this score in 2009, recording some music in October 2009. 
I wasn't able to track down what music was recorded then, but it was only a couple of days in the studio, so possibly the concert suites of the themes he had already written. So Williams was back in the studio for more recording in March and April 2010 when more scenes had been fully realized. It would be almost 16 months until Williams would record more music for 1010, giving the filmmakers more time to finish scenes. While he waited, Williams was able to work on the score for another Spielberg film, War Horse, which was scheduled for release the same week as The Adventures of 1010. War Horse wasn't the only piece of music that had John Williams' attention during the breaks between working on the music for 1010. In August 2011, the La Jolla Summerfest was the site of the premiere of his Quartet La Jolla, a 27-minute composition for violin, cello, clarinet, and harp. Cho Liang Lin, a longtime friend of John Williams, had been asking Williams to write a chamber piece since 2004, and finally it came to fruition seven years later. Something that shows how much Williams might not be too concerned about becoming rich off his work is the fact that he did not want to be paid one cent for creating the Quartet La Jolla. It was a gift for Cho Liang Lin, who played the violin on this piece. And because he was still conducting the Boston Pops in their annual Tanglewood Summer Concert Series as Conductor Laureate, Williams couldn't be in Southern California to enjoy the debut. Over the nearly two years he spent writing music for 1010, John Williams created a lot of thematic material, giving all the major characters some identifying melodies. Just as he did for all the artifacts that Indiana Jones discovers, Williams gives us a strong and memorable theme for the central artifact in the 1010 movie. It's a sunken ship called the Unicorn, and I found this to be the central theme of the film. Almost every time the ship is discussed or seen on screen, the theme appears. It's strong and bold, even in its quieter moments. Here is its introduction, as 1010 notices a model of the unicorn at the beginning of the movie being sold at a street fair.
We don't know anything about this ship yet, but we can tell it's going to be a major part of the story. And it's interesting that the theme is written in 3-4 time, like a waltz. Like a mysterious sea shanty, maybe emphasizing the waves in a way. Yeah, that's a very good observation. The unicorn theme will appear multiple times in the film, but its biggest performance comes in the awesome flashback sequence where we see the ship in action in a battle with pirates. This takes place almost halfway through the movie and is the highlight of the film for me. William certainly knew the film hinged on this sequence, which is being told by Haddock about his ancestor, Sir Francis Haddock, and the fight he had with the pirate Red Rackham. It's really this sequence that shows why this could not have been a live-action film. It has so many moving parts to it that trying to create this in a studio or on the water would not have worked. Anyway, the music for this sequence is truly the reason why it's so powerful, and it's the moment I really look forward to watching again when viewing the movie to prepare for this episode. The prologue to this flashback features the theme moving across different orchestra sections as Haddock talks of the ship during a moment of hallucination in the desert. Once the ship appears, this is almost the best musical moment in the film. Flashback starts as the sailors on the Unicorn prepare to fire cannons at the pirate ship. What you will hear throughout is a strong battle theme to keep the scene thrilling. comes the awesome rendition of the unicorn theme as the ships swerve toward each other on the ocean.
of all the themes Williams has written since Prisoner of Azkaban, this is the best one. Even without the visuals, you feel the heroism of the unicorn and the sailors who fight to protect her in the pirate attack. And during the fight, Williams keeps the fun going with some musical sync points on some of Haddock's punches, kicks, and swipes with the sword. After watching this movie in the theater in 2011, I downloaded this score and went immediately to the track Sir Francis and the Unicorn to hear this wonderful music again. Alright, so we shouldn't go any further, Felix, without giving time for discussing the music for our title character. That's right. And because I know you're a big fan of the perfect fifth, Jeff, let's start with it right away. You already pointed out the parallels to Indiana Jones. There's also a thematic parallel, namely that of the anti-hero. Indiana Jones as an ironic hero never reaches the perfect fifth musically. It's either the jumps in fourth, the imperfect tritone or the fifth is reached step by step stumbling. Towards the end, the motif is even exaggerated by ironically shooting musically right over the goal of the fifth with a sixth leap uh, approaching it from above. Right at the end, even with the sevens, it's da -da 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 -da, this part. The entire vocabulary of the intervals is extended throughout the entire theme without ever reaching the famous perfect fifth as a leap. With Tintin, who is not an ironic hero, but not the typical one either, William simply turns the fifth around. The musical motive moves higher step by step through modulation and thus acquires something progressive, purposeful, but nevertheless with a more modest or realistic habitus than Superman, for example. In some smaller moments, however, Williams turns the fifth back into the rising direction. In the great heroic moments, however, he uses the descending fifth as an antipole, not to exaggerate Tintin as a hero. It's possible that John Williams thus wanted to compose a certain grounding humility into the great heroic moments to give Tintin a more realistic coloration. Tintin is musically characterized more as an investigator in the beginning of the movie. In the score, Williams also notes stealthily as a playing instruction for the opening credits music. You can literally hear the musical sneaking up and down through interrupted figures and bass clarinet, piano and harpsichord. The intro reminds a bit of Catch Me If You Can, and as a loyal listener to, of your podcast knows, Jeff, even Dan Higgins, the auto sax soloist from Catch Me If You Can plays along. Yes, I noticed that very quickly. 
With Tintin, however, Williams uses five saxophones at once. One soprano saxophone, two alto and two baritone saxophones. In addition, the muted trumpet and trombones make it sound more like 40s jazz in the time when Tintin is playing, in contrast to the 50s jazz sound of Catch Me If You Can with vibraphone. Also, interestingly enough, as I said, Williams uses the harpsichord to create a nostalgic and perhaps historical sound for all the adventures Tintin is experiencing throughout the century. The harpsichord, like the vibraphone on Catch Me If You Can, plays along almost throughout as a shading. Williams also weaves the accordion in at some points to underline the Belgian local color. The animated opening sequence, which is also visually reminding a bit of Catch Me If You Can, offers Williams some sync points with the music, such as the insertion of the alto saxophone when Tintin appears as an ink blob, or the sound of the tabular bells when Tintin falls almost dramatically into a vortex of comic images, or the imitation of the sound of rotor blades by clarinet rolls. <laughs> opening sequence finally melts into a whirlpool of colors, which is transformed into the color palette of the ink box of RJ, the creator of Tintin himself. There he draws a caricature of Tintin and finally asks him ironically, have I drawn you before?
Yeah, I love that homage to Hergé. What makes John Williams stand out as a film composer is knowing how to create themes that can be used in just about any circumstance for that character. And you highlighted a lot of those with Tintin's theme. Now remember how evil Darth Vader's theme was? And then it was played on a harp and flute as Anakin lay dying? Williams does kind of the same manipulation for Haddock's theme, giving our fun sea captain a sort of she-shanty melody that is introduced in a comical way as he, Tintin, and Snowy the dog escape the ship in a lifeboat. Tintin asks Haddock to get them to the location of one of the models of the unicorn, which emboldens Haddock to take the oars. In this comical moment, various instruments such as bassoons, bass clarinets, and accordion have fun with Haddock's theme as he unknowingly knocks out Tintin and Snowy with the oars. So to show you how Williams can take a seemingly comic theme and turn it on its ear, he takes Haddock's theme and slows it down just before the beginning of the third act, when Haddock is in trying to inspire Tintin to keep following the clues to reach the sunken unicorn ship. Amazing. Snowy the dog gets a theme too, but it was not as obvious to me as some of the other thematic material that Williams created for this movie. At first listen, the theme itself sounds like just a harmony that would be laid under a melody in a series of connected quarter notes. You can get that impression, Jeff. The motive first appears during Snowy's hunt for the cat at the beginning of the film, and it consists mainly of two changing harmonies, which are, however, placed in the melody as alternating falling tones. In this case, it is D major and E flat major, a chromatic shift, that is, a shift of a semitone, the smallest unit in Western musical language. Williams, however, consistently lets D major continue under this shift as an accompanying harmony to create a steady, grounding line while he creates musical friction through the constant change of harmony above it. A technique for which Sergei Prokofiev was also known, but more on this later. One can thus wonderfully imagine the dog jumping around while at the same time he has that sense of purpose that is also distinguishing Tintin. And the melody, which seems chaotic in a certain way, returns to its beginning after four bars to the tonic as they say in musicology. From this one can see that it is not just loose action music, but a real motive. 
In this case, it is also instruments such as flutes, clarinet and occasional pizzicato strings that give the motive a certain lightness. The whole thing lies over driving rhythmic eighth note sound in D major consisting of horns, strings and marimba plus unrhythmic interjections in the low strings. Afterwards, oboes and accordion are added to the melody to enhance the intensity, local color and comedy of the scene. With a few woodwind runs to match the jumps of Snowy and the Cat, John Williams makes use of the famous Mickey Mousing effect. So, in a way, we have all the matching animals in the scene together, Jeff. The music is almost like in a silent movie. This is expressed even more intensely in another scene in which Tintin is kidnapped and Snowy hurries to his rescue, using the ladder of a fire engine as an aid, among other things. This motif technique that Williams uses here is best known from Sergei Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, where Prokofiev uses small motifs to depict the various characters in the story. Snowy's theme is somewhat reminiscent of the bird motif in Peter and the Wolf. In addition to the instruments that are assigned to the characters also show clear similarities. The flute, 
to the birch and snowy, the bassoon to the grandfather and haddock, and the clarinet to the cat and the tomphons. But the way, the original name of Snowy is Milou, because the author Hergé named the dog after his childhood girlfriend. Who knows, Jeff, maybe she was a, as busy as Snowy. <laughs> I hope he wasn't implying that she was a dog. <laughs> oh, it's funny. So there are two secondary characters in the movie, and they're called the Thompson Detectives. They look like they're twins, but they aren't because their names are spelled differently. They are essentially like the Keystone Cops, but not as smart. They are shadowing Ivan Saccharin throughout the movie, with clarinet and accordion echoing their mysterious nature. They're questioning Tintin in a scene about a man's murder at his apartment building, and not really doing much to solve the case. One of my favorite lines in the movie comes as one of them says, in response to not having any clues about the work of the dead man, we're completely clueless. Nice double meaning there. There's some fun with the piano as one of the Thompsons falls down the stairs. The detectives are English in the film, played by Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. But like many other characters in the novels, the detectives were originally Belgian. But their English nature makes the use of the accordion a bit strange. In the film, it's not easy to take notice of the music for the Thompson detectives in this scene because it comes during heavy dialogue, which is why it's great to separate it out and enjoy it here. So let's take some time to highlight a couple of other score moments that don't really rely on themes. As I mentioned a few times, The Adventures of Tintin feels very much like an Indiana Jones movie, and that is felt in the music during Tintin and Haddock's arrival to Bagar, which is where the third unicorn model is. Take a listen, and I'm sure you'll notice how this could have been used in any of the four Indiana Jones movies.
Going back to the flashback sequence on the unicorn, there's a great piece of music for the big sword fight between Sir Francis Haddock and Red Rackham, the pirate. After Haddock breaks free from bondage, he sets out to spill out gunpowder and blow up the ship. This sets off a fun sword fight that is made even more fun with some great work on the strings. Yes, John Williams loves thought fights. For the finale, he goes one better and oversizes it with forceful trombones, massive drums, strong strings, rhythmic trumpets and powerful timpani. The sword duel between the ancestors of Haddock and Saccharine is lifted to a new level here with a crane fight between Haddock and Saccharine, also musically. Even if you can hear a reference to the sword duel, this time it is much more powerful and in a certain way clumsier. Thank you. 
big fight between Haddock and Saccharin is musically based on the sword duel, but in a slower and more washed out version. Haddock is defeated at first, but finally defeats Saccharin with a vice he suffers from throughout the film. He throws whiskey bottles at Saccharin. Towards the end, all of the major themes appear once again. Tintins, Haddocks, Snowys, Thompsons, and a shading of the unicorns theme. And they come really fast in this final 40 seconds, so pay attention. Yeah, it's a task for the listeners, after all the introduction of the themes, to recognize them all now. You can hear a lot of the work John Williams put into creating a rich array of musical themes for The Adventures of Tintin, and it certainly doesn't hurt that he had almost two years to think about and write the music. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, The Adventures of Tintin was on the list of eligible films for the Best Animated Feature Film at the Academy Awards. It had won Best Animated Feature at the Golden Globes in January 2012 and received the equivalent award from the Producers Guild of America. Perhaps it was the animosity toward motion capture that hurt the Polar Express in 2004, and it also affected Tintin's chances, and it was not nominated for Best Animated Feature. The movie did get some recognition at the Oscars in the form of a nomination for Best Original Score. And this score by John Williams was a historic one, marking his 46th overall nomination and 37th in the original score category. 
And those numbers may not mean much on their own, but the 46th overall nomination broke the tie he had with fellow composer Alfred Newman for second on the all-time list of Oscar nominees, well behind Walt Disney's 59. He received nomination number 47 the same year for his score to War Horse. The score for The Artist, the homage to the silent film era, won nearly every award in sight, including the Oscar. There was one award neither The Adventures of Tintin nor The Artist won, and that was the Grammy for Best Soundtrack. That went to the non-Oscar-nominated score, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, written by Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor and collaborator Atticus Ross, who both had won the Oscar the year before for The Social Network. Well, this has been a fun trip through the score to The Adventures of Tintin. Now, the word on the street is that one or two more Tintin films are in the works, but there has been nothing started in terms of filming. If these sequels happen, the question for John Williams fans becomes, who will write the score? Haddock and Snowy will be a part of the next film since they are pivotal parts of many of the novels, so there are two musical themes by John Williams to look forward to. But that's if he does it. And probably the theme for the Thompsons as well. So will it be Williams or someone else taking the home as composer? If Williams can't do it, expect longtime Peter Jackson collaborator Howard Shore to be at the top of the list. So that's going to do it for this episode of The Baton. Felix, thanks so much for your amazing contributions to helping us understand why this score is so good. Thank you, Jeff, for your great efforts and dedication to this very special podcast. It really is a pleasure. John Williams would be proud of you. But who knows? Maybe he's a frequent listener? <laughs> well, I can only hope he has heard a few episodes. That would be enough. So those of you who are regular listeners, please continue to send questions or comments about the show to jeffswim at AOL.com. It's also a good idea to post a review of the show on Apple Podcasts and, of course, tell all your friends about this show. I'd love to hear from some new listeners. Thanks as always, and until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>